the Buddha referred to the state in which most beings live as a state of becoming. Becoming is uh, the way Tanisara Bhikkhu translates the word bhava, B-H-A-V-A, that which is, the Buddha said, becomes something else. Reality, present moment experience, becomes something else. We live in a state of unreality. Uh, or as the Tibetan Buddhists like to say, we live in a dream state. Sometimes we refer to this state of becoming as a state in which we're lost. In a very simple uh, but important way to think about what this means to be in a state of becoming, to be in a state in which we're lost, uh, this being for most people the state that they're in most of the time, uh, most run-of-the-mill people as the Buddha would say, uh, this state in which we're lost is a state essentially in which we're lost in thought. We're lost in thought. So uh, we're in Evolved, lost in thought worlds. Even today, we may have uh, been aware that we were in thought worlds, lost in thought worlds. Part of the day we spent in thought worlds. And one of the challenges, of course, of being lost is when you're lost, you don't realize, you don't know where you are. So when you're lost in a thought world, you don't know that you're in a thought world, which makes uh, going beyond becoming so difficult for us. The Buddha said the holy life is lived for the abandoning of becoming. Sometimes as I, as I consider the yogis on retreats, uh, as, is my, as is part of my job description as the teacher, uh, I perceive how we're wrangling with thoughts, how we're in these thought worlds. The opposite of being lost in thought worlds is a mind that is calm. So calmness is a function of uh, the abatement of thought. So much of the time we spent lost in thought worlds, what we're striving for is abandoning thought worlds, calmness, tranquility, peace. Peace is the state in which the mind is tranquil. So the Buddha says we train for peace, we train for peace, a mind that's at peace. It's such an interesting, uh, <coughs> like all the teachings on insight, discernment, the, the development of it, discernment is so interesting uh, because it is just that, it's developmental. So uh, before I came to Dharma practice, I wouldn't have really had much reason to notice my thinking and to notice that I was in thought worlds uh, I just thought that's the way things are. Uh, as I became a Dharma student, you know, 
and I began my practice more than 30 years ago, I started to, uh, started to become more aware of how much thinking I was doing. We often say that's the first insight in insight meditation. You realize how much thinking that you're doing. And I would go on my first retreats, and it was like, oh my gosh, there's so much time that I'm spending in thought worlds. But it's so interesting because it, because it is just that. It's developmental. It's a process. So uh, I think part of my process these days is a deepening understanding of the thought worlds that I'm in, but more importantly, just that I'm in thought worlds, a more a greater ability to discern that I'm in thought worlds and to understand uh, the drawbacks of that understand the drawbacks of that. It's one of the first things that we have to do in learning to come out of the thought worlds, to learn to know peace, is to understand the drawbacks of thought worlds. And you know, again, this is a process. This is a process for us. I think I see uh, my thought worlds. I know that I see them. I see when I'm in, involved in thought worlds, I see that with greater discernment. I still have a ways to go, for sure. But I also think my understanding of the drawbacks and my, my deep wish, informed by compassion, to abandon my thought worlds is much greater than it was 30 years ago. And of course, that's where we, we're, we're moving towards, right? You know, we begin by seeing thought worlds, but we have to, you know, I mean, at first it's a little alarming, and you know, we're aghast perhaps, uh, but it's a deepening ability to be able to see them, to understand their drawbacks, to develop compassion for ourselves, and from issuing from that compassion, the deep wish to abandon thought worlds. Because there's a real gap between seeing that you're involved in thought worlds and wanting to abandon them. That's like, do we really want to give them up, right? So that's kind of the gap we're seeking to bridge. One of the ways the Buddha described becoming in these thought worlds is as a yolk, not like the yolk of an egg, you know, Y-O-K-E, like the yolk that uh, ox are tied to. If you think of the Buddhist time, you know, it came from that kind of a metaphor, the ox that plows the field has that wooden, and you know, and metal thing around its neck, you know, uh, uh, you know and, and that's thought worlds. They're a yoke. They're a fetter. They're a form of imprisonment that we're in. So the Buddha said, "There's these four insights that we need to develop in order to abandon these thought worlds, to abandon these yokes. You know, where it's a self-imprisonment, right? That we're in." It's not like the poor oxen, you know, that the, the farmer puts the yoke on the ox, and we're putting the yoke on ourselves. The first insight I've already alluded to is the insight into the drawbacks of thought worlds. So we pay attention to thought worlds, we pay attention to thought worlds, and gradually, over time, you know, insight develops over time, understanding the drawbacks. In, uh, in thought worlds is going to develop over time. Uh, gradually, we understand that these thought worlds uh, are a form of suffering. They're a state in which, when we're involved in them, in which 
uh, were blocked off from the heart. They're a burden on the heart. And they prevent us from making the most of our lives and living our lives most effectively with wisdom and compassion. Which is very counter to how we think about thinking, right? We think about thinking is how, you know, what we need to do so that we can live our lives effectively. And then the teaching of the Buddha, and this is this was very radical to me and a little bit upsetting, you know, as a as a self-professed intellectual, you know, when I started my practice, you know, and they and you know, and the assumption was that your thinking is actually a drawback to your capacity to uh, make something of your life and to do good things in the world and to, you know, I mean, I had noble objectives largely with my thinking, uh, but, you know, I thought those objectives would be accomplished through my thinking. Not all noble objectives, but some. So we learn to see the drawbacks in thought worlds. We learn to see the allure. And that's something I already, I just spoke to, right? You know, it's really important to see how, even though they're painful, we hold on to them. You know, the Buddha speaks to this when he talks about becoming. He says, you know, I looked out at the world, just like, you know, and it's, it's the same experience that I have, you know, not that I'd be so bold as to compare myself with the Buddha when I look out at yogis on retreats, you know, uh, you know, over the years and see them wrangling with thought worlds, you know. Uh, you know, it's the same sort of experience that the Buddha had where you know, he could see people uh, just lost in thought and it was so painful, and yet the term is, you know, they delight in thought worlds, you know. We find these thought worlds delightful. There's a real attraction or an allure to them. So it's important to see that, you know, important to see uh, how we're drawn to these thought worlds and how we don't want to let go of them, even though they are so painful. The third great insight is to see the impermanent, to discern. We learn to discern the impermanent nature of thought worlds. And this is really, again, you know, something that you have to learn over time. You know, it's one thing to have an intellectual understanding of that. It's another thing to understand it through looking and paying attention over time and understanding that thought worlds arise and pass and they're not who we are. You know, they're just ways of thinking and holding on to certain patterns of thought that we've developed over the course of our lifetime. You know, you know the great the great benefit of developing this understanding is when you understand that thought worlds are impermanent, then you understand that you have a capacity to let go of them and not to engage in them. You're not beholden to them. Which leads into the fourth insight and in what I really want to focus on today is uh, the insight into the escape. It's an interesting term that the Buddha uses in this sutta, the escape from thought worlds. So understanding that there is an escape and understanding uh, that it's in our best interests to, uh, to escape from these thought worlds. This escape, uh, we could call a noble escape. It's a noble escape. Uh, it's a noble refuge that we seek from these thought worlds. It's a noble escape because it's an escape that when we avail ourselves of it, when we escape from these thought worlds, it will lead us, it's skillful, it leads us to a greater happiness in life. You know? And not the happiness that comes simply from abandoning something that's painful, uh, but the happiness that comes when we're able to be connected to the heart and live from the heart. And that's what makes the escape from thought worlds noble because it enables us to come to the heart and live from the heart. 
So this escape is escape in the service of freedom, like somebody escaping from uh, his or her captors. Uh, it's escape in, the sa escape in the service of freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom from the burdens on the heart, freedom from, freedom from that which is preventing us from a greater happiness in life, from taking action that's in support of our hearts and the hearts of others. So this noble escape isn't, you know, because again, the word is interesting, but it, it's worth, uh, you know, taking some time to develop understanding into, and that's what the Buddha is speaking to in these four insights, the insights into the drawbacks, the allure, the impermanent nature, and the escape, because it really is an insight, you know, to understand that there is an escape and to understand what it is and to understand the benefits of it, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a noble escape. It's not about repressing thoughts. It's not about repressing the emotions that drive thoughts. It's not about denying thought worlds or the things that we're thinking about. It's not about, you know, we tend to think if I deny, if I escape from my thought worlds, then I'm denying or repressing the things that I'm thinking about. Those are two separate things. You know, it's like, it's like you know, Joseph Goldstein said, used to say years ago, you know, the thoughts about your mother are not your mother. You know, you know, your thoughts about fill in the blank are not fill in the blank. <coughs> That's your koan for today. You know, if your thoughts about your mother are not your mother. <laughs> so really, escape from thought worlds is not even about. It's not even about getting rid of them. Escape really entails unhooking from them, you know, unhooking from them, getting some space, and then making room for there to be, all right, there's thoughts, but there's also the breath, and there's also the heart. So making room in our field of vision, if you will, vis-a-vis -vis discernment, so that we can see clearly what our range of potential objects for our consciousnesses and then choosing to put our consciousness in a good place, not on the thought worlds, but on the breath and in the heart. So escape ultimately from thought worlds is escape from the burdens on the heart. So it's something that we uh, engage in out of compassion. We, we find escape from thought worlds out of compassion. It's an action of compassion. So just the simple action on in any given meditation, uh, or even sitting here right now and thinking about what I'm saying and putting that to the side and escaping from that, you know, and going to the breath is something that we do out of compassion. It's an act of compassion. It's an act of compassion for ourselves because it leads us to the body and to the heart, and in turn, it's an act of compassion for all beings. You know, we tend to think that our thoughts about the world and our thoughts about beings and our thoughts about what we're thinking about, uh, you know, even the thoughts that are ostensibly worthwhile thoughts are thoughts that are, uh, are in the service of helping others, but, you know, really what they do, our thoughts in large part, is block off the heart and prevent us from being compassionate towards those who are dear to us and all beings. So escape from thought worlds is 
escape from a condition in, we're not, in which we're not able to be effective and make the most of our lives, escape from a condition in which we're weakened and compromised. So on a retreat, like today's retreat, uh, we're seeking an external refuge. You know, this is an external refuge. And it's going to support us in escape from thought worlds, and escape from becoming, and escape from the burdens on the heart. Uh, in, in taking a step back and finding an external refuge, we are taking a refuge from worldly things, worldly affairs. Uh, on the first level of worldly affairs, which is the affairs of our lives, right? You know, if it's our relationships or the things in the world or the things that we're interested in the world. Another way to think about uh, escape or refuge uh, that we take as Dharma students or uh, going on a retreat like this is, you know, and this is really kind of the contract for a Dharma student is, you know, where uh, we're, we're abandoning the ways of the world, right? the ways of the world, uh, loka dhamma, the dhamma of the world, right? Loka means world, dhamma is a way of being. So we're looking for escape. Uh, again, it may be the contract uh, of the Dharma student, we might say, in that we are seeking escape from the ways of the world. The ways of the world are, are uh, uh, the ways in which, again, most people, the run-of-the-mill person, the world, looks for happiness in attaining pleasure and avoiding pain, looks for happiness in gain, in acquiring material things and possessions, and avoiding loss. Uh, the run-of-the-mill person looks for happiness in status and praise, and, the, uh, the, and, and avoiding uh, disrepute and blame. So we're escaping from that way of being uh, and instead following a different way of being, the Dhamma or the Buddha's Dhamma. So that's sort of the first sort of external meaning of the world. And then the Buddha said, you know, there's two meanings. The internal meaning is uh, escaping from uh, sense experience, right? So the experience of the senses, uh, which of course includes thinking, which includes thinking. So, you know, we go to meditate and we're ostensibly, we're escaping from the world. We come into this space, which is, you know, I always love this space because there's no windows, you know, sort of like, it's almost like you walk out into the street, you know, partly because of the concentration. It's like, oh my God, there's this world out there. It's really crazy. Out on Hudson Street. It's not like it was when we first started doing these retreats here 25 years ago, but that's a sidebar. So it's, it's, in a way, it's good because it's even more of a contrast now than it was then, you know. But, you know, so there's that escape, you know. So we come in here and we come in to meditate or any time that you meditate, but there's still the thinking about the world, right? That's why the Buddha says, you know, we find a quiet place. You know, his instructions are explicit, right? Find a quiet place, the foot of a tree or an abandoned building. This is close enough. 
not to the foot of the tree, but abandoned building. And, and then, you know, we, we focus on the breath and put aside all greed and distress with reference to the world. You know, so that's the deeper refuge and the deeper escape, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, putting aside essentially the thinking about the world, which could be, you know, the world at large or just the world of our own sense experiences, the way the body is, you know, the affairs of our lives, the affairs, you know, the way the mind is, so on and so forth. So the way that we do that is to find this internal refuge, this internal escape. You know, this external escape is coming here into this room that's so quiet. And then this internal escape is on the first level is the breath, right? Uh, this internal refuge in the breath. Uh, so, so, you know, this is really important. I mean, we're making this effort. We say it's the first thing we teach in meditation. Put aside your thoughts, focus on the breath. Put aside your thoughts. Easier said than done. The mind wanders, come back. The mind wanders, come back. A lot of the ways that I've learned to teach meditation and practice meditation myself over the years has entailed being able to do that in a much more skilled way, right? So the way that I teach, put the mind on the breath, is so much different than what I taught 20 years ago. You know, the more proactive emphasis on the use of directed thought and then, of course, the cultivation of the easeful breath is really helping you put aside the thinking. And then, of course, we've also, you know, and something that I was blasphemy, you know, when I first started teaching it, you know, question the thinking. Is it useful? Is it serving me? Is it in my best interests? You know, so all of these elements of skill that the Buddha teaches and that we try to practice are really in the service of keeping the mind on the breath and putting aside the thoughts, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, putting aside our worldly concerns, putting aside our thought worlds. It's still really hard, but you need that more refined skill. You know, I could only do that. This is what I was saying before. You know, it's a development. After 10 years of my practice, it's like I'm doing all this meditation and I'm still not that good at putting aside thought worlds and, you know, I'm okay on it. I'm retreating and then I go into the world and forget it. I need more skill. So I had to seek out more skill. And then during the course of the day, you know, we seek to keep the mind on the breath to the best of our ability in that same service so that we're not in the head, so that we're not in thought worlds. We're in this internal refuge and closer to the heart. But even that, of course, is not enough. That's concentration, right? That's concentration. Uh, the easeful abiding really helps us, as I said this morning, stay with the breath. Uh, stay in the present moment, stay out of thought worlds, because the mind, I write about this, you can read my book, a little footnote on the bottom of the Dharma talk there, skillful pleasure, you know, uh, the mind will only stay with the breath, you know, you do all those things, but it'll only stay with the breath, and out of those thought worlds up to a certain point, uh, you have to learn to cultivate an easeful and pleasant abiding so the mind will want to stay out of the head, out of the thoughts, and with the breath and in the body. But even then, we still have to look at the root cause of the thinking, right? You know? If we develop enough concentration by doing all those things I've just sort of outlined, keeping the mind on the breath enough and in the body enough to the point where we develop some concentration, those qualities of jhana and specifically equanimity, the ability to look clearly 
then we also have to look at what's driving the thinking. You know, what's driving the thinking, the Buddha says, is clinging. Clinging drives the thinking. Clinging to a mental state, clinging to the different forms of aversion and desire is what drives thinking. This is the Buddha's teaching on the dependent origination of suffering. So to find escape, ultimately, we have to abandon clinging. In his teaching on the four Dhamma summaries, the Buddha says the world is swept away. It does not endure. The world is without shelter. The world is without ownership. The world is insatiable, a slave to craving. So the experiences of pleasure and gain and status and praise that we seek uh, are insatiable. Uh, you know, we can never get enough. Uh, the wanting the body to be a certain way and the mind to be a certain way, we can never get enough. The world is insufficient, a slave to craving. So I think this is where, when we think about the Dharma student and what we need to let go of in terms of the ways that we cling, uh, it's really useful to look at the Buddha's teaching on the four clingings, right? The four modes of clinging. <clears throat> and to really kind of ask, you know, which of these, uh, to what extent, with each of these, can we, can we give up these ways of clinging? What are the drawbacks in these ways of clinging? Uh, what's it like when we're able to let go of sense pleasure, sense pleasures? So uh, as we learn to uh, develop this noble escape, uh, you know, because this is where, you know, the thinking comes, right? It's thinking about the sense pleasures, you know, the wanting the sense pleasures, the planning out of the sense pleasures, right? Probably that last sitting, you were thinking about what were the sense pleasures for tonight. You know, which ones that you were going to get and which ones that you couldn't get that you want to get, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, so there's the, you know, the clinging to the sense pleasures. And then, of course, probably one that not too many people here engage in, clinging to views and opinions. <laughs> you know, so to what extent can we let go of views and opinions? Uh, clinging to social conventions. Might have been thinking today in that last sitting about the different social conventions. You know, I'm going to watch the ball game tonight. I'm going to go to that party. I'm going to do this, etc. And then the fourth, self-identity view. The thoughts that we have about ourselves, the way that we create identification. That's really an interesting one. But you know, as we pay attention to these and we see that the world is swept away and we see uh, you know, the limited satisfaction and we see that we can't hold on to any of these things and we see that they, you know, they just conduce to craving and clinging, you know, we become more, we more so want to give them up, you know, self-identity view and wanting to be acknowledged or whatever, you know, we're wanting to make a name for ourselves or wanting people to like us and all that kind of stuff. It's sort of like, eh. You know, it just blocks us off so much from the heart, you know, and all this effort that goes into, you know, ascribing to different social conventions and views and opinions and, and the pleasures of the world. You know, all of it is so limited. All of it is swept away. So we have to see these drawbacks. <clears throat> so we seek 
this escape by coming to a retreat, by meditating, is an external retreat, and then we seek this internal escape from the thought worlds uh, uh, through concentration, the breath, and having a pleasant abiding. We develop tranquility, an alternative to the ways of the world and the pleasures of the world, uh, equanimity, wisdom. Uh, uh, the more we develop our concentration, the more we're able to see clearly and let go of uh, you know, the clinging and the holding on to you know, the wanting of the pleasure and the holding on to the views and opinions and the attachment to social conventions and the self-identity. So all of these things we have to pay attention to. Uh, the more we find this kind of escape and refuge, and the more we find this internal escape with the breath, which also conduces to wisdom, uh, which enables us to let go, the more we begin to know the, the ultimate refuge, which is nibbana, which is the cessation of uh, thought worlds, the cessation of clinging, the alleviation of the burdens on the heart. You know? So you know we're, we're moving towards that. You know, just by developing equanimity, we're moving towards awareness, just pure awareness. We can think of uh, we can think of this quality of nibbana. Uh, the ultimate refuge is just a quality of pure awareness. So, you know, it, it, very simply it's characterized in the Sutta about the monk Bahia. You know, the Buddha said to Bahia, you know, for you Bahia, uh, when there is hearing and, with, and just hearing, tasting and just tasting, cognizing and just cognizing, feeling and just feeling, then for you Bahia, there is the end of suffering. There's just this is the end of stress. You know, we're not adding on anything. We're just listening to the Dharma talk and not thinking about it. We're just sitting and not thinking about it. We're just breathing and not thinking about it. We're cognizing a thought arises, but we're not thinking about what we're thinking about. So the closer we move towards you know, the greatest refuge, which is the refuge of pure awareness, freedom. But we're moving towards, you know, we're moving towards this, this, this ultimate refuge, right? I mean, the breath is a really good rest. You know, the Thais often talk about the breath as the resting place. It's a really good resting place. And, and at that place, as I've sort of alluded to, you begin to touch into equanimity and pure awareness and stillness. I mean, you touched into it today, most of you, probably everybody. You know, maybe there were just moments of just peace, right? of just a letting go. Maybe there was just a moment. Oftentimes it's not when you expect it. It's when you walk out into the street or you're in the bathroom. You know, it's like, oh my God, there's a moment when I'm, you know, I'm washing my hands. You know, it's, that's classic. That's classic Buddhism. A moment of, of peace and freedom. You know, we're moving towards this state of pure awareness, freedom. We're moving towards the abandoning of thought worlds. The holy life is lived for the abandoning of becoming. You know, this state that's known as the deathless state. It transcends that which is subject to birth and death. You know, it's unconditioned, right? A state that's unconditioned. It's like always there. 
the happiness that doesn't die. So the Buddha asked, you know, what transcends the conditioned realm? What transcends the conditioned realm? I mean, our problem is we're thinking so much about the conditioned realm and what we want and don't want in the conditioned realm. So, you know, we're trying to let go of all those thoughts and see is there something beyond all this stuff that I'm spending all my time thinking about. So these are the kinds of questions that we begin to ask, you know, as we begin to, you know, learn to escape, you know. I mean, our escape, you know, escaping from the ways of the world, uh, escaping internally from the thought worlds to the breath, uh, escape from uh, this dependency on that which is not dependable, the conditioned realm, pleasure, having certain views and opinions, being part of certain social conventions, some kind of a self-identity. The world is swept away. Cannot offer us a lasting happiness. So as Dharma students, you know, we are turning more and more to that which is not conditioned. You know, and what supports us in doing that, of course, is a deepening recognition that we're going to die. You know, that, and so it's a deepening recognition of the truth of death. You know, the more we can understand the truth of death and that we're going to die, we begin to turn more and more to that which doesn't die, towards that which doesn't die. Now, I mean, this is ultimately why we give up thought worlds, right? We give up thought worlds because Engaging in them is preventing us from knowing that which doesn't die. But you have to come to understand that, you know, and you have to come to start to understand that it's that which doesn't die. You know, once you really truly understand that, you know, thought worlds aren't such a problem. You know, but we want to strive and move towards getting to the place where, you know, and I kind of outlined this at the beginning of the talk. You know, it's like there's a big gap between seeing thought worlds and developing enough wisdom to where you are disenchanted with them. You know, we're striving for disenchantment with thought worlds because you know, engaging in those thought worlds is preventing us from a greater happiness. It's preventing us from an unconditioned happiness. It's preventing us from a happiness that doesn't die. So this deepening recognition of death uh, motivates us to turn towards that which doesn't die. And most people ignore the truth of death, so, and for that reason, they don't turn to the deathless. Because, you know, if you think you're not going to die, why would you try to turn to that which doesn't die? So sometimes when people come closer to dying, or they get older, like a few of us are doing, you know, we begin to ask, you know, is there something that transcends the happiness that comes from these conditioned things that are so limited? So the retreat, I always talk about this, or I often talk about this on retreats. You know, a retreat is a commitment to that which transcends the world. I mean, it's a huge commitment. I mean, you know, this is like way preaching to the choir. You know, I mean, we made a commitment today to not engage with the ways of the world, right? Externally, which is huge. 
know, internally, you know, that's the struggle, the wrangling with the thought worlds, greed and distress with reference to the world, right? I mean, some of the thinking might have been about the retreat, but it was probably mostly around self-identity around the retreat, right? You know, am I the best meditator? I'm the worst meditator. Where do I fit in the group? You know, that kind of thing, all that kind of stuff. So the retreat is an escape from the ways of the world, and in on the retreat, you know, and it's good conditions for learning to escape from thought worlds and to escape from clinging. I mean, that's one of the beauties of not speaking on a retreat. At least, you know, we're not espousing our views and opinions. We're not uh, engaging in different social conventions. So, you know, one question that I really kind of ask or where I see, uh, where I look for progress is what's my commitment to moving beyond the world, to moving beyond the conditioned, to moving towards the unconditioned. Is there a lessening of interest in the conditioned realm? Is there a lessening of interest in conditioned things and uh, a disenchantment with conditioned things? Is there a disenchantment with thought worlds? So again, you know, these questions are paired <coughs> with the realization that time is passing. Time is passing. Days and nights are passing endlessly. How am I spending my time? Do I want to spend my time lost in thought? Is this how I want to spend my days? Lost in thought. How can I make the most of my time? Is being immersed, lost in thought, preventing me from making the most of my time? As we develop wisdom, you know, we begin to understand that we can find a noble escape from thought worlds. We can find uh, a way to lessen the burden on the heart. On a day like this, on a retreat, we get intimations of that. We develop wisdom. We see the benefits of this noble escape. We begin to touch into what lies beyond the world, even just being here. You know, I mean, I started to see, oh, you know, when I started doing retreats like this, you know, there is another way of living. There is another way of living. And what we see, and I'll end with this, uh, you know, what we really start to see on a day like this when we do what I've just talked about, you know, how you know, I've just framed what we're doing, is we, is we see our goodness. You know, we begin to know our goodness. You know, the Buddha said our goodness is found in our generosity, in our virtue, where we practice non-harming, and the effort that we make to train the mind. Yeah. So this effort, just in coming here, and you know, this incredible effort, noble effort that goes into this practice, you know, that's a display of our goodness, regardless of how many breaths we felt. So we have to really learn to acknowledge it. In fact, this is said to be the greatest form of our goodness. You know, this effort that we're making to find this noble escape, to abandon thought worlds, is you know, is a profound, you know, and to be. You know, and to find a lessening of the burden on the heart, to know a lessening, and to be more connected to the heart and to our deeper wisdom and our capacity for compassion and love. You know, this is what we're doing here. So I like to call this the good work of the Dharma. You know, this is the good work of the Dharma. There is another way of being than the way of the world. 
the ways of the world. You know, that our, this way is a way of ease and tranquility and wisdom and love and peace. And part of the, the goodness that we know in doing this work, this good work, uh, entails doing it together, right? There's this quality of solidarity that comes in doing it together in being part of a shared effort. You know, and, and, and really, you know, I've been talking a lot about solidarity. You know, solidarity is, is it really takes its great strength in being part of a shared effort in the service of doing something in which we're going against the grain. You know, we're going against the grain uh, in doing what we're doing here. So uh, there's always going to be a few people going against the grain, you know, and this is our power is, as, you know, is, is, is in us as a group doing what we're doing and, you know, it really kind of supports this idea of a few people, you know, doing good work can accomplish great things. You know, we don't need to fill up stadiums. That's what I used to think when I started, you know, meditation centers. We've got to fill up stadiums. We've got to have, make something that's really big, you know, and, you know, what I came to realize pretty quickly was, uh, you know, when we're trying so hard to fill up stadiums, we tend to lose sight of the good work, you know? And it tends to be uh, uh, a hindrance to achieving solidarity. Uh, it's harder to achieve solidarity uh, in, uh, uh, in trying to make everybody happy, you know, and try to meet the needs of all the beings who, you know, think that they want to do what they're doing, you know, what we're doing. So, you know, let's not underestimate, we tend to underestimate what we do in coming here. You know, let's acknowledge the good work that we're doing and the blessing that it is to do it together and take joy in it. So, and right there for today, and we'll just close our eyes just for a second. <clears throat> 